Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Wow! Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com/acast and use code acast for twenty percent off your first purchase. That's bombas.com/acast. Code acast. Hi, my name is Candace King. Welcome to a Super Bloom podcast. I am your host. I'm so happy to have you here today. I've been looking forward to having this conversation with my guest, Allie Phillips. Allie Phillips is a political candidate. She is a mom and advocate. She is a candidate here in Tennessee running for District 75. And if you want to follow her on social media, her name is Allie Phillips and she is at Allie for so A-L-L-I-E-4, the number four, T-N, like Tennessee. And if you're wondering why I'm sitting down with Allie here today, well, I've heard her name a lot. If you follow me on social media, then you know I've been back at the Capitol building. I've been sitting in sessions and trying to continue my education on how laws and bills and, and all of these things work. Allie is a name that I've heard a lot in the past year and she's actually running as a candidate in her district, District 75 here in Tennessee. So we're going to talk a little bit about that today. We're going to talk about why she's decided to run. And it's not only a personal matter to her, it's a personal matter for me as well. We are talking about healthcare in this conversation. It's a little bit more of a grown-up conversation if you have young children in the car. Just want to maybe be aware. But I don't want to speak too much on 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 our talk. Uh, it is extra long. I just, I, I, yeah, there's nothing else to say except here's my conversation with Allie Phillips. I had never been to the Capitol, any Capitol building, maybe on like a school field trip when I was a kid, but like I've never been to a Capitol building until last year. And I just moved to Nashville, Tennessee, now like two and a half. I've been here for like two and a half years. So I'm still kind of a new resident, but I had never really gotten much 
I had not been involved in politics beyond just like voting and making sure people were registered and trying to pay attention to even, you know, not just the presidential vote, but, you know, the local, you know, voting cycle as well. And then that's kind of, you know, maybe participating in a in a march here and there. But I'd never really gotten involved on a local level. And it sounds like you hadn't really either until these past couple of years. No, what's funny, though, is everything that you just said is literally what I was saying yesterday. Yesterday was my first time in the Capitol since like my first grade field trip. Um, My mom worked at the Capitol when I was younger. I don't know. I don't remember what she did there, but I remember she organized some type of field trip for my class to go there. And I haven't been back. And my extent of politics was voting. And just recently, I joined in with my county party and started doing like tabling events and getting people registered to vote. And yeah, I've been to like Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter marches, abortion marches and stuff like that. But yeah, never been like head deep into politics, uh, just kind of the activist side of it. Which is which I'm sure anyone who, you know, I know that you're running for office. You're running for office here in Tennessee for a district 75. 75, yep. And so for anyone that would be listening to that would be like, whoa, whoa, wait. So you just stepped into the Capitol for the first time yesterday. You have not had you. It's not like you grew up with this, like, I'm going to be in, involved in politics as an adult. And then suddenly you're running for office District 75. So for people who are probably who you would maybe even be like saying, how do you how do you get from one to the other? How do you just like run for office? How do you decide to be like, oh, I I could do that? And I know, obviously, I know that was not the process of events. (laughs) (laughs) But do you even sit back going sometimes like, is there an imposter syndrome? Is there a book? Is there like a how to run for office right now? Or like, are you just as absorbing as much information as you can. I mean, you know, I think so many of us, I've been in the every time I've gone to the Capitol, which is a handful of times since last year, you know, that's kind of always the, the chatter amongst everyone sitting up in the gallery, watching so many injustices occur on the floor of the House, our represent our elected officials being silenced unjustly. And everyone goes like, are you going to run? Are we going to run? Who's going to run here? Who's running? And to be the person that raises their hand is like, yeah, you know what? I'm going to I'm going to run is is big. Are you surprised that you're that person sometimes that raised their hand to a certain extent? (laughs) Yeah. So like you said, that it wasn't just a spur of the moment I decided to run. Never in my life did I think running for office was in the playbook for me. I just thought my purpose in politics was to vote for who I thought would be the better leader. And I I did that as much as I can. And so after what I went through with my story, it was other people. My mom actually was the first person that brought it up to me. And she said, have you ever thought about running? And I was like, God, no, why would I do that? And she's like, well, you know, you, you have a good story. You have the platform. You're relatable you're passionate about what you care about. She was like, I think you would be a good representative. And I was like, well, that's cool. But anyways, and then I just like moved on. And then it was like a, maybe a week later, both of my best friends brought it up and they're like, we were actually just talking about that. And I was like, okay, you guys are nuts, whatever. And I just pushed it off again. And then some community members started coming up and asking me. And 
About a month ago, I went to a vote run lead candidate training up in Detroit. And something they said there was women have to be asked about seven to eight times to run for office before they agree to do it versus men only need to be asked once. And I was like, that can't be the furthest thing. Like that is the most truest thing I've ever heard in my life because that's what happened to me. I kind of like tried to talk myself out of it. I was like, well, I don't really know a whole lot about politics. I don't know what it takes to be a rep. Like, I, do I have the qualifications? I don't have a degree in political science. I, you know, I don't have all of these labels under my belt. Like I wasn't a city council person. I wasn't on the school board. Like this is completely new for me. And something somebody said to me was like, you think you're not qualified? And I was like, no, I don't. And they were like, you think the reps in there are qualified? And I was like, no, I don't. And they were like, all right, then. <laughs> like the qualifications, like, where is the list? So it kind of just made me realize like, okay, like my rep in particular, he's in his seat because he ran unopposed. Right. So where's the qualifications there? He just applied, got some signatures and he has it. Burkhart, right? Just yes. so, yes. Yeah, Jeff Burkhart. Representative <laughs> Jeff Burkhart. I'm very excited to talk about him more later in this <laughs> conversation as well. I said yeah. hi to him yesterday. I saw on your Instagram. <laughs> I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> Once he realized it was me. <laughs> I think, well, I, I do want to, for those who don't know you, I li living here, I've gotten to know you just being a part of this community and uh, getting involved with various groups here in Nashville as well. And I've so I've personally gotten to know your story. I want to start off with the fact that I think part of the issue is the fact that your story shouldn't be something that any, it shouldn't be an obligation. It shouldn't be anything one else's story. No one else should have any privilege to having to know your story. That should have been something always personal for you. And the fact that so many people had to get involved in the beginning, you know, just on a medical on the medical side is just, I think, obviously why you've decided to continue to share your story. And it's such a big part of your platform and why you're running for office. And so I want to ease into, you know, what you've experience in these last couple of years and just also start with asking when you knew you wanted to be a mother and what that meant to you. So I've always wanted to be a mom ever since I was a little girl. I grew up with two older brothers, so I'm the youngest of three. And I always wanted a little sister. And I asked my mom nearly every year as a child to please give me a little sister. And she wouldn't do it. And I was devastated. So I knew as I got older that I want, when I had my own family, I wanted a daughter first. I always wanted one of each, wanted a son and a daughter, but I wanted my daughter first because I always wanted that little sister. I wanted to be able to like paint her nails, dress her up and do things like that. And so when I found out I was pregnant when I was 21, it was scary, but also exciting because at the time I was still living with my parents. I was finishing up my senior year of college and I was working a couple jobs just to get by as a single person. So it was kind of like one of those situations where like, am I even in a position to have a baby right now? Not really, but I've always wanted to be a mom. And so I took, took what I had and I 
took care of my daughter to the best of my abilities and I did what I needed to do as a mom. And so my like ultimate family goal was to have a husband, have a home and have two kids. My daughter, Adelie, she, her biological father isn't in the picture and he hasn't been for a few years now, but my husband has been a great father for her and he doesn't have any biological children of his own. So Miley, our deceased daughter, she was going to be his first child. And so we were both excited to try and get pregnant. And so it was just kind of like one of those, I don't know if it's like a bucket list or just, you know, your dreams are coming true. Well, when you find someone that you love and you're you're like, oh, I want I want to do life with you. I want to, you know, and for a lot of people that looks different, whether that's creating, but whether, you know, I fully am for anyone that's listening that doesn't have a hope to have kids. That is completely fine. But I, too, was the same. I always wanted I could not wait to like like have kids and be a mom like I just wanted to be a mom and when you find that person you're like oh but I want to do this with you it's like (laughs) so exciting and so magical it is it really is and I was I was that girl that always had like baby dolls and I played with Barbies and so I was like the nurturing kind and I would be like the mom of the group of my friend group so like everybody always came to me for advice or like how to like, oh my gosh, I feel sick. What do I do? And I'm like, well, did you take medicine? And so like, I was always the mom. And so I was like destined to just be a mom. But I also knew that when I was 14, I unfortunately lost one of my friends to suicide. And I went into a depression after that. And I still struggle with depression to this day. But point in my life in high school, I convinced myself that I didn't really have a purpose, that I was just kind of here existing. And once I was pregnant with Adelie, that whole like thought process switched. I was like, this is my purpose. I I was supposed to be a mom. Like this is my, this is my new like goal in life is to raise her to have a better life, to be a better person than I am and just show her all the beautiful things in life the best way I can. So being a mom is, it, like you said, it's magical. It is the most magical experience. And some days are very stressful. She pushes me to my absolute limit. But then other days she just cuddles up with me on the couch and we watch TV. And it reminds me of how lucky I am that I still have my little girl here. I love the the moments that you were willing and have been so open to share of also, you know, Adelaide singing to your belly like when you found out you were pregnant you have it on video of you know you and you you telling your husband that (laughs) you are pregnant and he's gonna be a dad and you're gonna be a second time mom your daughter's gonna be a big sister Mm -hmm. and so this was very much a like you had you had the camera ready to go could not it I mean such a beautiful joyous moment because me and my husband, we had a agreement that after we were married, we were going to get a house and then we would try for a, a baby. And so we got married in March of 2022. And then we bought the house in October. And I found out I was pregnant early November. <laughs> like, so it happened very quick. <laughs> Wasted no time. And so I set up the camera because when I was at the, I was at the store just getting groceries, I was on the phone with my mom. I was like, God, it stinks in here. Like it smells so bad. 
And she's like, what do you mean? And I was like, just everything. Like, it's just everything smells terrible in here. I can smell the cleaning supplies. I can smell like the deli department, the floral department, like all at once. And she was like, are you pregnant? And I was like, uh, I don't think maybe, I don't know. And she's like, well, weren't you guys trying? I was like, yeah, but like, we just tried. Like it wasn't, (laughs) there's no way. So I bought a pregnancy test and I set up to record just in case it came back positive. I wanted to make sure I got my reaction. And sure enough, it came back positive. So I took three more tests just to make sure. And they all came back positive. And I was like, wait, what? I wanted this, but why am I scared? But I'm excited, but I'm nervous. <laughs> it was just all the emotions came back again. All you're like, the what do I do? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I don't know why every time, like both times I discovered that I was pregnant and I was uh, with my ex-husband, with the father of my kids. And each time I was like, wait, what? And I had to be reminded, <laughs> like, I am an adult who like, yeah. was purposefully trying to make this happen. <laughs> <laughs> like it was just like ah it's just like very oh even though I, it was it's just such a it just always caught me by surprise even though it's it exactly does. what i expected <laughs> to see this is Paige, the co-host of giggly squad and i want to tell you about a company that i've been loving olive in june olive and june gives you Everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. What other moments. I mean, that is the wonderful thing about having our phones with us all the time. We get to document all these like wonderful like moments that go so fast. And and especially, you know, when you think back, what other moments did you capture on your phone in those in the first half of your pregnancy that you just that you hold in your heart dearly right now? 
still? So something that I still have in my phone that I never posted was my husband and I, every week, he would do a little handshake on my belly. And so it was supposed to end with him doing the handshake with Miley when she was here. Obviously, that didn't happen. So I still have those videos where I'm just holding the camera towards the mirror and he's doing a little fist bump to my belly. And it just kind of reminded me of like the joy that we had going into the pregnancy. And then of course, the videos with Adelie, every single night, she would sing to my belly, she would sing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star. And she was very big sister from the start. She was making sure I was drinking water. She was making sure I was taking my vitamins. She would make sure I ate. She's like, mommy, did you eat yet? And I'm like, no, I'm not hungry. She's like, well, the baby might be, so you need to eat. (laughs) And so I'm like, okay, I'll eat something. And just sharing the moment with my my friends and my parents, that kind of collage video where I announced my pregnancy on TikTok, I FaceTimed a lot of my friends and seeing their reaction to the pregnancy test, it just kind of like solidified for me, like this is the moment that I've been waiting for. I have a husband, I have a home, and now I get to expand my family like I've always wanted to. And so I kind of hold on to those memories. And the last memory I have of Miley and seeing her on the ultrasound screen before she passed, that's something I hold on to as well. Can you tell us a little bit about the 19th week appointment? Yeah, so I was arriving for my routine anatomy scan and we made it a family affair. It was me, my husband, and my daughter because she wanted to see her sister. And so we got there and we started the ultrasound. And I remember being pregnant with Adelie that the anatomy scan took a little longer than normal ultrasounds because they have to do all the measurements, check all the organs, make sure you know everything's good. And so when she stopped about five minutes in, I was like, oh, that was quick. Like we're done already. And she was like, no, I actually need to go grab your doctor. I've seen some pretty serious things. And immediately I got like a knot in my throat. And my husband was like, why do you look sad talking to the technician? And she just kind of put her head down and she was like, I just don't like giving people bad news. And she walked out of the room. So of course, hearing that, my heart is like pounding out of my chest. My hands are getting sweaty. A million things are going through my mind. Like, oh my God, what is she going to say? It felt like forever for the doctor to come in, but it probably was just a couple minutes. She came in and immediately, like didn't even say hi, was just like, so I just looked at your ultrasound photos. So there is no amniotic fluid, fluid surrounding the fetus right now. Both of her kidneys seem to be not formed correctly. And she's measuring about a month behind. So we're going to send you over to, or we're going to refer you over to a maternal fetal specialist to get further testing done. And then like, then she stopped. And I was like, what? And she repeated herself. And I was like, lack of fluid. Is that because I'm not drinking enough water? And she was like, no, I mean, it could play a part in it, but you know, that's not very likely. And so I'm immediately like blaming myself for what's going on. I'm like, what, did I not get enough vitamins? Did I not get enough protein? Like what is happening? And then we sat in this little room with another woman for about an hour trying to get a hold of the high-risk doctor to schedule an appointment with them. And it was just like a daunting, like the, the eeriness of the silence. It was so loud just sitting there in silence in that little office waiting for someone to pick up the phone. And I'm just still playing these scenarios in my head. Like, what does that mean? No kidney development, no fluid. 
uh, stunted growth? Like, is that treatable? And so I'm like Googling while I'm sitting in that office, what the diagnosis could be pretty much trying to like self-diagnose my pregnancy complications. And after that, we got the appointment scheduled for that Friday. It was four days later. And so we went to that appointment, couldn't bring Adelie. And that's where we found out the rest of what was happening. So both of her kidneys didn't form and weren't working. Her stomach and her bladder didn't form and weren't working. They could only find two working chambers in her heart. Um, They couldn't find any lung development. The no amniotic fluid, she stopped growing at 15 weeks. And then she had a rare brain defect. Pretty much her brain didn't split into two hemispheres in the early stages of development. With that diagnosis, just the brain defect, only like 3% of fetuses can survive to birth with that. And then they usually die within the first year of their life. So with that and then everything else, she was deemed incompatible with life and would most likely die in utero. And then hearing that was just kind of like another what? Like, what? what is happening here? It was like one of those out-of-body experiences. And I was kind of like waiting for the doctor to be like, just kidding. Like, you're totally fine. Baby's good. You're good to or go. Or offer a solution. You know, or like, a solution. Well, or, yes. Well, I, I read in an interview that you did where you were even playing out scenarios like, oh, well, okay, two out of four chambers of a heart, we can get her a heart transplant. Mm-hmm. Like, we can get her some lungs. We can get her. And the realization when you hear brain, you can't you can't, that's not something. It was hard because after she said everything, her next statement was, do you guys have any questions for me? So like, it was kind of like waiting for a, we can send you to this, you know, doctor, we can send you to this specialist. And so I was like, what are we supposed to do? And she said that I had two options that I could either continue my pregnancy But if I chose to continue, the longer I stayed pregnant, the worse Miley would get and the higher risk my health would become. So I was putting myself at risk for a miscarriage, a stillbirth, or if she did survive birth, they would have hospice care set up for her immediately after for her to pass. And she said, or I could terminate my pregnancy. But if I chose to terminate, I couldn't do it in Tennessee because of the ban. I would have to look out of state and that she could not offer me any resources that I would have to pretty much figure it out on my own. And by resources, you mean other doctor referrals and financial resources as well? Yeah, she couldn't like send me like a list of like funds that could help or uh, like transportation services or clinics that she, you know, suggests or surgeons that she suggests. Like it was just a good luck. And for anyone who's confused by that, I'm assuming that that is she would be legally liable as well here in the state of Tennessee because there have been other doctors and and even like Texas that where there is just as equal of a ban for healthcare that that basically have gone and gone in legal trouble because of that. Yeah, essentially anybody that plays a part. Like in Texas, recently with all the Kate Cox stuff. They're saying like, even if like an Uber driver drove a woman to a clinic to get an abortion, the Uber driver can be charged because they played a part in the procedure. And I'm like, how on earth would an Uber driver know that this woman's going to get health care? What I think that the word choice has been has now turned into whether it's like a positive or a negative thing, like you have a good choice and a bad choice. And I think that that's where it's been, that word has been manipulated, especially when it comes to making a decision like this, that just because there is choice at matter, 
doesn't mean that it is that it's an easy choice that one is a good choice that one is a bad choice you have to make choices in difficult times as in this and none of it feels good and for some people who find themselves where th- this is a positive choice that they did not necessarily intend on conceiving a child or not in a place to have another child or maybe had conceived a child in very dangerous circumstances in which you know, they could not be physically, emotionally attached to someone, that that would be a threat to their life. There's so there are a million different reasons there are a million different stories that are none of our business. And but that all of a sudden the word choice that it's like a, it's black and white when it is such a gray area of and it's so circumstantial to what the person and the people uh, are going through who are faced with those choices. They weren't really choices, no. though. What did that evening look like? What are the conversations? Because I think that that's also what gets neglected, is you find out the information and then you have to kind of... But I think that people don't want to actually examine like what those conversations feel like and look like for the people who are actually experiencing them. It's not an easy conversation because, like I said, this was a planned pregnancy. We wanted to expand our family and we were excited that we were pregnant. So hearing that the pregnancy wasn't going to be compatible, it was hard to hear. But when saying that I had two options, I could stay pregnant or leave the state, I really only had the option of leaving the state because staying pregnant posed a risk to my health. And I have a daughter that's already here that needs her mother. So risking my life for a non-viable fetus didn't make any sense. Also wanting to point out the maternal like rate of death in this country is not stellar. It's very no. dangerous for someone to give birth. Like it is it is a dangerous activity. It is a dangerous yeah. procedure. Yeah. Tennessee, this is actually something I said in the rally yesterday before the session started. Tennessee ranks fourth for the highest maternal mortality rate in the country. Fourth. And then we rank like seventh for teen pregnancy and 14th for infant mortality. But then and, we and that's where when everything's like going, oh, that's where when everything's going well in all your checkups yes. up until delivery. Yes. Well, that's the other problem is we rank 49th in the country. So almost dead last for offering resources to families, women and children. And then we rank like 37th, I think it was for women that have health coverage. So there's a lot of women in our state that don't have health coverage, so they're not getting that prenatal care that they need. So how are they supposed to know if they have fetal anomalies or a fatal pregnancy or anything like that until something starts happening? And then at that point, when they go to the ER, we're seeing in states like Texas where they're denying women at the ER because anything that can be deemed under an abortion is illegal. So if a woman is pregnant and walks into an ER and needs health care, I mean, it's just, okay, well, sorry, wish you luck. Like, they're just going to let her die because of these laws. And that's insane. That's insane to me. You shouldn't be able to legally be denied at an emergency room, regardless of the situation. I would say one of the biggest issues with our state is the lack of knowledge. When when I say choice, when I say I'm pro-choice, people automatically are like, oh, you're pro-abortion. That means pro-abortion. No, that does not mean pro-abortion. There are plenty of people that are pro-choice that would never get an abortion. Pro-choice means that you are supportive of women making the choice that is best for their lives and their body. 
Now that can be getting an abortion. That can be continuing their pregnancy and keeping the baby. Or that can be giving birth and putting the baby up for adoption. It's whatever choice that they make. Because like you said, there are millions of stories out there and not a single one of them have anything to do with me or you. Abortion is the only healthcare procedure that is being regulated by our government right now outside of like gender affirming care. And so the fact that a singular group of people, women are being targeted, it's not humane and it makes us lesser than of our male counterparts. We're essentially second class citizens because we're being denied essential health care. There was a conversation I'd had a while back and I'd found myself saying like, is someone with a uterus, is someone with a uterus? And I, and they'd kind of been like, oh, are you doing that? And I said, no, but, but it does, I feel like I need to highlight that. And I was, I, I couldn't put into words why, you know, and, and also this idea of like, of course, like I, I want to support the idea of also the woman and gender identity. And I want to support all of those things. So that, that, on one hand, sure. But I felt different. I was like, no, there's also a different way. I kept wanting to say, like, because I have a, a uterus, that there's different things that I think about and that I consider. And there's an organ that does things differently in my body. And I feel like that is it is uterine healthcare. It is like I don't <laughs> understand how there are many people in the world who identify who have a uterus that I don't identify as a woman. And but you know what? They have other things that they have to concern about because they have this other organ in their body that needs special care. Mm-hmm. And I don't understand. I don't understand how we live in a world where you can go and make sure that like if you need a valve replaced in your heart, you can seek every kind of opportunity and care to stay living and safe and breathing. You can choose what goes into your body. and But when it comes to a, a uterus, all of a sudden your your thoughts and your rights and your ability to make decisions and choices for yourself and your family members gets ripped away. I can't imagine the immense grief that you experienced at that time. Was there anger as well? Oh, yeah, I was pissed. I was I <laughs> channeled a lot of that anger on social media, you know, grief has stages, you know, you start out really sad and broken, and then you start to get angry. And then you start to have that understanding and then acceptance. And we all go through grief in different waves. Mine started with the sadness. And then I think the anger came very quickly, because I shared my story online. And because I shared my story online, I subjected myself to anybody who saw it. And the video that I posted about Miley's diagnoses is the one that went viral. And I had comments from people that were super supportive, you know, saying, I'm so sorry for your loss. Like, if you need any help, let me know. But then I got comments from people that were like, don't murder your daughter, continue your pregnancy. You should hold her, show her you love her before she dies. Don't play God. Don't kill her. And like just comments like that. And then there were ones that were like, oh, I was told my daughter wasn't going to live either. And now she's 13 and thriving. And so it just, it irritated me and it pissed me off because you they're not my doctor. They weren't in that room. They didn't see every single thing that I saw. Even though I told them in the video, she had all of these anomalies, all these fatal anomalies. They're still like, consider carrying your pregnancy out to term. If you want to do that, if you want to go through labor and delivery and push out a dead baby, be my guest. Do that to help you heal. I, on the other hand, don't want to do that. 
that is traumatizing. And also the fact that Miley had no lung development, if by the off chance she survived birth, she would be gasping for air until she died. To me, that is not love. That is a selfish act for me and it's not humane. I mean, we as humans, we have like, for example, our dogs and cats, when they get injured and they're suffering or they get sick and they're suffering, we, we put them down to end the suffering because prolonging suffering is inhumane. Why is it any different with a non-viable fetus? I was planning on ending Miley's pain and suffering before it even began. Not to mention that labor and delivery isn't an easy task. Like, I don't know how your birthing experiences went, but Adelie, Adelie had a big head. <laughs> and so we needed some assistance. And then her umbilical cord was wrapped around her neck. And so like everything was just going crazy all at once. And some women don't make it out of childbirth. And so to just tell somebody, hey, I think you should give birth just so your baby can die in your arms makes no sense to me. That makes zero sense. Pregnancies can go bad at any moment. Who knows what would have happened if I stayed pregnant longer? If I wasn't in New York when I was, I wouldn't have known Miley died because I didn't have another appointment set up in Tennessee yet. Before we get to traveling to New York, I also want to, have you ever thought about what it would have looked like had Tennessee not had the ban? Like what a, what your experience could have been like? Still traumatic, tragic, yeah, all, the, all of those things. But what it could have looked like had you been able to be here in your home with family and have you thought about what that would have been like? Could you paint that Absolutely. picture? Yeah, I mean, it would have been a simple thing of, I would have called my OB and said, hey, we decided that termination is going to be the route for us. And OB would have been like, okay, great. I'm going to set you up or I'm going to refer you over to this specialist or this surgeon and they'll give you a call. Would have waited for a phone call and then set up my procedure. I could have been in my bed the night before, woke up, went and had the procedure and went home and slept in my bed again next to my husband. And with my daughter in the house, I could have had my family there to visit me in recovery. I could have been around doctors that I may have not met before, but I know that they're good people because my doctor recommended them and just been in my familiarity of home. I've lived in Tennessee my whole life. I've, I moved down here when I was six months old, but I've been here ever since. Also, I could have had time to grieve. That is something that I didn't have time to do. I had to accept that I was losing my pregnancy and then immediately turn to how the hell am I going to get this taken care of? I have to call states. I called like four or five different states trying to figure out where we were going to get the money to go do this because midterm abortions are not cheap and neither are flights or hotels. And so I had to leave my daughter behind. I had to send her to my parents in Nashville. And so I slept in a stranger's bed, a rock hard bed in the middle of Manhattan. It was cold. I was wearing somebody else's clothes. Like it was the most dehumanizing experience I've ever been through. I have never felt like such a tiny person in this world until that moment. Was there a, an organization that helped you get to New York or how did you? Yeah. So I had reached out to like uh, multiple different abortion funds and I made just over their threshold to support. So I couldn't get like the New York abortion fund or the American, I think it's, yeah, the American abortion fund or something like that. And so 
I was, we were looking at like taking out loans to get to New York. But one of my followers was like, do you have a GoFundMe? I'm like, no, I don't. And they were like, start a GoFundMe. I want to help. Like I want to donate what I can. And so after a couple of days, I finally bit the bullet and started to go fund me and shared it on TikTok. And my followers met the goal the same day. My mom booked the flight for me and I paid her back with some of the GoFundMe money. A woman in Brooklyn got in contact with one of her friends that had a studio apartment in Manhattan and was like, hey, can a couple of these people stay at your apartment while you're out of town? And her friend was like, sure. Like didn't ask any questions, just mailed her her keys. And so I didn't necessarily work with any organizations. I just worked with strangers from the internet who saw a woman in distress and needing help. And they, I guess, humanity is still out there. There are kind people out there. They're hard to find, but they're out there. And it's because of them I was able to get to New York. Without TikTok, honestly, without my platform, not just TikTok, if I didn't have the following that I did, I don't think I would have been able to get to New York. And I think about that daily. And I think about how thankful I am that I had the following I do because other women who may not have a platform like I do, what are they going to do? They don't have the money to get out there. They don't have, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers to donate to them. They either have to stay or, you know, go into debt, borrow money that they don't, that they can't pay back. I think I'm getting so emotional because it's also so fucking personal. Like it's so personal and it's vulnerable and it hurts. And so to have to be put in a position where people have to rally around a member of the community at that point on one hand is like humanity in itself, but just how inhumane it is to put someone in, in that position in the first place is just what gets me every time because like to be able like it's such a private thing it It is and I've been very lucky that with sharing my story so many other people felt the need to share their stories with me and I truly realized how common these things are we always hear like when it comes to abortion statistics that oh, the medical emergency ones is like the 1%. But like the amount of women I talk to, I mean, hundreds of them. It's not as rare as people think. We just don't talk about it. Yeah. Because we're made to feel ashamed. DNCs, like DNC is essentially you're aborting fetal tissue. That is what you're doing. And, and, you know, miscarriage is very common, very common. And so it, it, but, I, I, that's where my heart just hurts. And it is so incredibly, it, what a beautiful, you know, example of humanity that so many people were there to make sure you did have a, a place to, to like some sort of foundation to stand on while you walked through this yeah. experience. So you get to New York. I also imagine that, that, yeah, this is all very expensive. You get to New York. How do you, you find a doctor, you find medical care who is going to help you a specialist. I can't even imagine having to research that process in a state that you don't live in. It was, it was difficult. I ended up, somebody had sent me a link to the New York abortion association or something like that, but they help people find clinics and find care and get in contact with like the different funds and stuff like that. And so they took down all my information and they connected me with the clinic that I went to. 
and I just asked all the questions. I wanted to make sure they checked all the boxes. And the other problem with trying to find care out of state is not just the logistics of getting there and the cost of it, but the time frame that they have because they are taking care of patients that they have in state and then this influx of patients that are fleeing from out of state. So a couple of clinics that I called, they had like a month or two waiting list and my doctor couldn't tell me what if I stayed longer meant, like a day, if I stayed pregnant longer, a day, a week, a month. And so when they're like, oh, we can get you in in like April, I'm like, I don't know if I have till April. Like, I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. And so New York was the closest appointment I could get. And it was a week after I started calling. I was calling on a Monday and they could get me in the following Tuesday. And so it was just, it was really, it was weird. It was a very weird experience. And also just, like I said, no time to grieve. Like I was calling clinics all day that Monday, trying to figure out where am I going to go, looking at flights, looking at hotels. But I will say when I got to New York, the woman that reached out to her friend to let us lend her apartment, her name is Jess. She was like eight months pregnant at the time. And she told me she was going to be my New York mom. And she picked me and my husband up from the airport and drove us to Manhattan. And she packed us these two giant duffel bags full of clothes, New York like style coats and gloves and earmuffs and all this other stuff that we need for being in New York. And she was there every step of the way. She got me a necklace with an M engraved into it for Miley. She drove us back from the or from the apartment to the airport. Like she made sure that I got everywhere I needed to be and safely. And so again, complete stranger. She just saw my story on Instagram and she was like, I'm going to help you. And I still talk to her to this day. She has two beautiful boys now and I'm very thankful for her. She went out of her way when she didn't have to. Was your husband able to come to the, because also the process, this isn't like you go in, you have a procedure and then you're just out. You know, it's, it's you, I'm sure you go in and they also have to admit you as a new patient as well and go through all of that and all the paperwork and all of the things. Was your husband able to be there for you? He was able to fly to New York with me. But so where I went wasn't like a hospital. It was an abortion clinic. It's abortions only. That's all they do. And so they only allow patients inside privacy reasons and to kind of just minimize the amount of traffic, I guess, in and out. So he stayed back at the apartment by himself while I went to the clinic. Being a midterm abortion, it's a two-day procedure. The first day, like you said, paperwork, doing the blood work, doing urine labs, you know, checking my vitals, doing all of that pre-op stuff. And then the second day is supposed to be going in and doing the abortion. The first day they told me to prepare to be there for about five to six hours. Like that's how long it was going to take to get all the testing done. So I fully prepared to be there majority of the day. My appointment was at like 7.30 in the morning. And I think we were like two or three hours in when they did the sonogram. And that's when I found out that Miley's heart had already stopped beating and they got in contact with the surgeon. And he said, because my last fetal heartbeat was almost two weeks prior, I was at risk for infections and blood clots and going septic. And so that they needed to do the surgery like ASAP to minimize my risk. And 
so again, no time to like comprehend what was happening. I got brought back to sign paperwork for anesthesia. And then they handed me a gown and a cap and some slippers. And they were like, go change. I changed. I sat in a waiting room for about 10 minutes. And then I was back into the surgery room. Like it happened that fast. Because your life is at risk. Yeah. Yes. I was told that because they did a pelvic exam and he told me that my cervix was very hard and that normally they give like these cervix softeners to make it easier to enter through. So he said that they possibly couldn't do the procedure today if they could not get through my cervix. And so if they couldn't, they would give me the cervix softeners and I would come back the next morning. So when I woke up from the surgery, the first thing I asked the nurse was, was the surgery successful? And she said, yes, ma'am, it was. Because I woke up and I was in pain. Like I, it was immediate pain. And I said, so am I not pregnant anymore? They got Miley out. And she said, no, ma'am, you're not pregnant anymore. And then it just hit me hard. It hit me like a freight train. And I just cried. And crying, I'm sure as you know, uses abdominal muscles. And it was causing more pain. And so I had to stop crying so I could stop being in extra pain. And it was just, it was an awful, an awful place to be. And by myself, I was just sitting in a bed by myself with some curtains next to me, crying, like hurtled over in a fetal position, just thinking to myself, like, why me? Like, what did I do? What did I do to deserve that? And it sucked. It sucked so bad. It's so lonely. It was very lonely. I've said it before. Like, I wouldn't wish what I went through on my worst enemy. Like, because it was the most, like I said, it was in the clinic, the staff there were impeccable. Like, this is nothing against the clinic. They were so kind to me. They were so sympathetic. They knew my story. They knew I didn't want to be there. And so they did everything they could to make sure I felt comfortable. But it was the fact I had to be there. It's the fact that I had to even meet these people, fantastic people. But I've never met them before in my life. I'll never see them again, more than likely. And it just, I felt like I was in a foreign, I was, I was in a foreign city. I've never been to New York City. And I didn't have a single person to hold my hand or just rub my shoulder, tell me I'm okay, it's going to be okay. I was alone. And I think that was the worst part of it all was going through it alone. I can't imagine what the flight home was like. It was a, it was quiet. I was, I was in pain. I will say probably the following two weeks because I, they gave me these medications. I was on three medications. One of them was a pain reliever. One of them was antibiotic. And then one of them was a pill that contracts my uterus. So my uterus could contract down on its own. And that the pain medicine did not touch what the pain was being caused by the, the uterus pill. Every time my uterus would contract, I would like topple over and like hold my stomach and try not to like cry out loud. I think I sat in the bathroom on the airplane majority of the flight because, and this may be a little TMI, but after abortions, you, you bleed a lot, a lot. And every time I was contracting, I could feel blood 
And I figured I would rather it be going into the toilet than into the diaper that I was wearing. And so I sat in the toilet, on the toilet, the majority of the flight back home. That is such an awful, like, mental image. I kind of, like, suppressed that image. (laughs) And dehumanizing when you could have just been at home. Yeah. Having, you could have, there's no reason. There are wonderful doctors here in the state of Tennessee. There's a great medical community here. There is no reason except for this law. And I think the hardest part for me when that plane took off was the realization that I was leaving Miley behind. You know, she flew with me to New York and then I flew home without her. But I was, I did my research and I found a clinic in Connecticut, or not a clinic, a uh, funeral home in Connecticut. And the funeral director drove from Connecticut to Manhattan and picked up Miley's remains for me the, the next day after I got home. And drove her back to his funeral home and he cremated her for me. And he told me that he would only charge me, it was like a $50 cremation fee. And he asked me what kind of urn I wanted. And I asked him if he had like an online like gallery that I could look at. And he sent me a picture of this little pink urn. And he was like, I was thinking maybe you would like this. And I was like, that is little, that's perfect. Like that is so perfect. And so he said he would put her remains in there. And then a couple of days later, he sent me a, shipping label. And he was like, she's on her way to you. And I said, wait, I didn't, I didn't pay for the the cremation yet. I was like, where do I send the money? And he said, don't worry about it. Just let me know that she gets to you safely. And he said, also, I packed a little teddy bear with her so she didn't travel alone. And it is like a teddy bear that's this big. And it's the tiniest teddy bear. And so again, to humanity, I mean, this man went out of his way to drive across state lines to go get a deceased fetus because they they resonate with my story. They knew how heartbreaking it was and how devastating that process was for me. And they just wanted to help in any way they could. And I'm so thankful for them. Do you feel that that's part of what's driving you to run for office? Is that almost like a to say thank you and and kind of pay it forward to others. Yeah, because they took care of me when I was at the lowest point in my life. These complete strangers took care of me. And now I want to take care of them. I know I can't take care of everybody, you know, across the country that, that pitched in and donated, but I can start with my district and hell, maybe I'll go to Congress one day. Maybe I'll run for president one day. Who knows? But yeah, that is a big part of it because I was shown so much kindness and care and just selflessness that it doesn't make any sense for me to not do the same. And also the fact that it's my job as a mom to take care of my kids and the current lawmakers in our state are threatening my life and my daughter's life. And I'm not okay with that. And I have to protect her. And the best way for me to do that is to be up there in that house with them and fight back on everything that they're trying to propose. That's a negative. Let me say that, a negative. Because abortion should not be a partisan issue. Healthcare should not be a partisan issue. We should not be divided on who gets healthcare and who doesn't. That doesn't, that's, doesn't make sense. In what world does that make sense? Who gets to say, Candace, you get to have healthcare, but Allie, mm, no, we're not going to let you get it. 
And again, it comes back down to the uterus. Like, obviously, there's a a universal health care issue in this country. Mm -hmm. But as well, specifically, I don't understand why so many people in this country feel that they have a say over the specific organ. I do not understand. We don't argue about someone's heart. We don't argue about someone's liver. We don't argue about whether or not someone should be able to have someone else's liver transported from their body to someone else's body or kidneys. We don't argue about Mm -hmm. any other organ. Why? Why have we decided that this is that this is fair game, that this is like something that needs to be debated I, I, is beyond me. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I want to talk about Miley's Law as well. Was Miley's Law. It was the did you begin the process of creating and I'm still learning all the terminology, but creating is it a bill? Is it a, I don't know the difference between a bill and a law. Did you begin that process before you decided to run for office? Yes. Um, so it would be a bill. So bills turn into laws. OK. And so Miley's law, I knew once I was in a better headspace after I was back that I wanted to do something in honor of Miley, whether that's start like a nonprofit to, you know, uh, raise money to help other women get out of state, you know, whatever it was, I wanted to do something in Miley's name. And again, going back to TikTok, one of my followers was like, you should write a bill called Miley's law. Like you should write something called Miley's law. And I was like, huh, okay. Yeah. Why not? And so Miley's law in short is just giving choice back to parents when diagnosed with a fetal anomaly. And I know fetal anomaly is such a broad term and so many people hear that and they're like, what? Because fetal anomaly can mean they're missing their whole head or it could mean they're just missing like the tip of their thumb. But for me, it's not my decision to make. That should be up to the parents. Because again, continuing a pregnancy and going through childbirth is very demanding of a woman's body. And nobody should have the right to tell a woman that she should have to continue. She should have to have her baby. Nobody has the right to say that, like you said, to tell anybody else, like, no, you can't give your kidney to that dying kid. Like, nobody can do that. It's your bodily autonomy. And I'll tell you the reason why people have that thought on uteruses is because there is another living being inside of our uterus. And so they claim that we don't have the right to decide what happens to the being inside of our uterus. Even though but that the, 
that's tissue that is not yet a viable being outside of the uterus. Yes. Yes, exactly. And they get so mad when I say that, like when they start off as zygotes and embryos, they are quite literally like they're leeches. Like they are feeding off of their parasites. They feed off of us. And that's not to like dehumanize a fetus or anything like they are of the human species. Yes. Mm-hmm. I'm it's very science much and aware. biology, science yes. and biology, <laughs> very much aware it has human DNA, but at the same time, without me, it wouldn't exist. Like you can't take a 10 week embryo out of the uterus and watch it grow out of the womb. That's not, it's not going to happen. So yeah, while it is dependent on my body, Yes, it is my body, my choice. And something I've had to say to somebody before when it comes to Miley, um, they told me that I don't get to play God, that I, I, who gave me the right to play God and to choose to end her life early. And I said that Miley's diagnosis was so fatal that if I stayed pregnant, she was threatening my life. And at that point, It is no longer a who deserves to live. It is she was threatening me and that is a form of self-defense. We all have the right to defend ourselves and her body was threatening the life of my body. And so I had to do what I needed to do to defend myself and that was choosing to terminate. Thankfully, I didn't have to go through with the abortion while she was still alive in my body. I'm very lucky in my situation that she passed on her own. And I say that because I went to New York with so much guilt. I went to New York with so much negative thoughts of what if my doctor's wrong? What if she could live and be okay? What if, you know, it's not as fatal as they're saying, like I had all of these thoughts and I was feeling awful about going up there because I didn't want to have an abortion. But her passing before just confirmed for me that my doctors were right. There was going to be no viability out of the womb. This was out of your hands. That there's nothing you did. And I think that that's also what constricts so many, so many people talking about miscarriage is that we want to, it's hard to believe that there wasn't a, like, well, why? What's the, why did this happen? When the reality is, is that this is, this is science and biology and and it doesn't always like there there's times where where the people don't even know that they're pregnant before they've had like they were maybe late a week and it was really just their body recognizing oh this tissue is not going to develop beyond this and it you know like that's it's so many things that we don't understand but there's also a lot of things we do understand and that is my hope that you know anyone who has sadly experienced a form of miscarriage it can also understand that 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 that's not their fault like yes. that i don't yes. that we want to take it on that there's something that we did wrong when there's nothing these things happen and it's and awful I, I went through that i went through that thought process i had the thoughts of like i said what did i do wrong what did i not do right and i blamed myself cuz i was like you know i'm i'm a woman like i have reproductive organs this is literally what I, I'm supposed to be able to do that a man can't do. Like I am supposed to successfully bring life into this world. Like I had that thought process. And so I blamed myself day after day after day. Like what did I do wrong? And 
it took my doctors and my family and my husband and everybody like digging into my brain saying like, it is not your fault. And my doctor said that everything that happened with Miley, all of that happened in the early stages of development, that it was already, all of her organs were already bad before the anatomy scan, probably before I even found out she was a girl, but she was so small that they couldn't see the anomaly. So she was already doomed essentially from the start. And so there truly was nothing, nothing I did or could have done to fix it. So you decide to begin Miley's Law to just bring back the ability for parents to basically choose with dignity how they want to move forward with a, a pregnancy that is including a, and please help me on the terminology so I don't mess it up. Fetal anomalies. With, fe- with fetal anomalies. So in order to do that, you go to your representative, you present this. What what do you what what was that like, Allie? How did that go? <laughs> it was a great time. <laughs> I had originally met with the Democratic representative in my county. His name is Ronnie Glenn, and I told him my story and I told him my idea for Miley's Law. And I was preaching to the choir with him. You know, he's he's pro-choice. He supports women choosing. And I spoke with a woman that's part of the party. Her name is Mary Richards, and. <laughs> I was like, should I like talk to some Republicans about this? I was like, because my representative is a pro-life Republican. Do you think he would talk to me? And she was like, I mean, I definitely think you should tell them your story. Will they like listen and take it into consideration? I don't know, but it's worth a shot. And so she reached out to him and she told him like, hey, one of your constituents would like to talk to you about her abortion. And so he knew straight up what this conversation was going to be about, but he agreed as he should. And so we met at the library for two hours and I told him my story. I told him my idea for Miley's Law and I told him that as my representative, I would like his help in getting it up to the legislator. And he said that he would help me. He said that he would set up a meeting with me and the attorney general and you know, go from there. He was like, I'm not the person that you need to be talking to. You need to be talking to the AG. And I was like, okay, because I knew nothing. I don't know. But I also tested his humanity. And I asked him if he knew what an abortion was by definition. And he said that abortion is the killing of babies. And I was like, that no, that is so far from the truth. Abortion is a medical procedure, but okay. And then I had asked him, you know, if he had any children. He said he had a daughter who was, I think, 25. So she's a little bit younger than me. And I was like, does she have any kids? And he said, no. And I said, okay, great. Let's humanize this for you. Imagine your daughter was pregnant and told you, called you on the phone and told you everything that I just told you about my pregnancy. And she said, dad, if I continue my pregnancy, I'm putting my life at risk. What advice would you give her? And he was like, you're not going to like my answer. I, I want to hear it. And he said, well, the way I grew up is I would tell her I think she should continue her pregnancy. And I said, even if it's putting her life at risk. And he said, that's just how I grew up. And I said, if you were my father, I would have so much hatred towards you. I was like, and what if she did get the abortion? Would you disown her? He said, no, I wouldn't disown her. I mean, I wouldn't be happy about the decision she made, but I wouldn't disown her. I'm like, that is so shallow. And for me, that moment just confirmed that if he doesn't even care about his own daughter, how the hell is he going to care about constituents and the people in this state? 
Can you repeat his name just one more time? His representative Jeff Burkhart. Jeff Burkhart. Mm-hmm. Yep. Shout Jeffy. out to Representative Jeffy Burkhart. Jeffy Burkhart. <laughs> Another part of the conversation was I was talking and he interrupted me and he was like, wait a second you already have a daughter that's here. And I said, yes, I have. She was five at the time. I was like, yeah, I have a five-year-old. And he was like, and then you lost this one. And he was like, your second one. And I said, yeah, my second pregnancy, first loss. And he said, well, I'm just a guy, but I've always been told that it's always the first pregnancies that go bad. And I was like, yeah, I mean, some of, some first pregnancies can go, it can be any pregnancy. Who told you that? He was like, that's just what I heard growing up. I was like, and you didn't think to do a simple Google search? <laughs> Anything? And this man is voting on women's yeah. reproductive yes. rights. No, and not just voting, like is in charge of participating in the laws of our lands, like is in <laughs> charge. <laughs> like That's terrifying. It's upsetting it's terrifying. It's heartbreaking. Very, uh, yeah. That's it, it uh, really just, he, yeah. It's <laughs> when I was at the Capitol yesterday after the rally, we were walking to the Capitol to be inside for the gaveling in. And there were these middle aged men standing outside the doors with these ginormous posters of aborted fetuses, they claim, or aborted fetuses ripped to shreds. And a sign next to it that says more babies die from abortion than guns every year. And I really, I, I kept my composure and I didn't engage, but I really wanted to ask them how their uterus was doing today because it was all men. There was not a single woman standing out there. I know there are women who do participate, but the other part of me wants to just educate them and be like, you know, actually no babies have died from an abortion because babies are born. So you literally cannot abort a baby because they're already here. That yeah, is called murder. birth. That's called yeah. birth. Yeah. <laughs> like if you're if you're terminating life after it's here, that is murder. And that should be yes. <laughs> we should outlaw that. <laughs> but and it just And then also, I don't know if you saw one of the Democrat representatives, Antonio Parkins, he tweeted before the session started that he had a folder on his desk. Yeah. And inside it had pictures of deceased fetuses. And not only that, but also I was, I was walking around Cordell Hall to go see a couple representatives. There were people passing out little pamphlets of photos of deceased fetuses in them. And I said, in my mind, I'm like, the amount of dis- like disgusting behavior that is happening here. Imagine if we were handing out pictures of like these deceased kids from these school shootings, like the crime scene photos, like how, how distraught and how like upset the Republican Party would get if we're sharing pictures of deceased kids that were actually here, but it's okay for them to hand out deceased fetuses. Like I don't, the double standard here is astounding and and it's just it it's very low it's very low and they're in it's two very different circumstances that are somehow trying to be turned into as if they're the same well my other part uh, is like how can you prove this was an aborted fetus because there are fetuses that pass in miscarriage 
you know, and that are collected at some, sometimes and women are at hospitals, the fetus is collected. I personally don't know what they do with the bodies of fetuses, but I'd imagine it goes into some sort of biohazard. But like, where, where do these pictures come from? And how do you know that was an aborted fetus and not just one that passed in miscarriage? Or maybe the woman went into preterm labor and it wasn't at a viable, a viable age. It's just, it's... You don't know hate, the story. You yeah. don't know the story. And which goes back to, this is something that should be private between a person and if, if their partner is involved, a person, a partner, a medical, co- like in their community of doctors. And, and that's yeah. who should be sitting down in the room making decisions about their health care and how and Absolutely. what they decide to move do to move forward. Not a house full of Willy Wonka ticketing, you know, gavel banging. Which, power hungry. Power man. hungry. Elected officials that are more married to a political agenda and paying attention more to their political agenda than science and facts and biology and their own community members, their constituents. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want a real estate developer telling me medical advice because that's who my representative is. Yeah, he owns like a real estate company. I don't know where his medical degree is. Uh, I don't think he has one, but... The majority of those lawmakers down there do not have medical degrees. Matter of fact, one of the Republican uh, reps, um, Representative Briggs in Knoxville, he's proposing essentially what Miley's law is. And he's a doctor. And so the fact that there's a Republican down there saying, hey, this ban is too extreme, like you're risking women's fertility by doing this, I think pretty in simple terms, his would give abortion access for non-viable fetuses and obviously like uh, health risks to the mother and stuff like that. Miley's law is a little bit more broad than that. It isn't just for non-viable, it's just for fetal anomalies. So it's kind of similar, but not entirely. Like that's a, that's a start. That's a step. Getting somebody from the other side to be like, man, this is not right. This is not okay. And going against the supermajority, will it pass on the floor? I don't know, but I know he has democratic support. He has bipartisan support, a hundred percent. But Afton, Afton Bain has proposed a full like release of the ban, which I love her to death. And I just saw her yesterday. I visited her in the, her office. And as much as I would love a full lift of the ban, I know it's probably not going to happen. So I'm kind of like hoping to see Representative Briggs's move forward. I would love to see Athens get approved. Oh, oh yeah. Like, but I know our GOP isn't just going to be like, oh yeah, okay, we'll give abortions back. They're not going to do that. So I think the baby steps is the best way. Well, what would, what can we do to help you and your baby steps right now? What can we do to support you in your campaign? Yeah, so I get to start collecting signatures next month to officially be on the ballot. So that's exciting. Best way to help right now is to share my story with people. If you can donate time or money, that's great. You know, political campaigns cost a lot of money for whatever reason. So if you can donate a dollar, a hundred dollars, whatever is comfortable, or if you can't donate money but can donate time, I'm going to need all the volunteers as the summer approaches because we're going to be knocking doors, calling constituents, getting people hyped up and registered to vote if they're not voting. 
or if they're not registered yet and making sure people are getting out to the polls. So right now, I think a lot of it is just social media. So sharing my posts, telling your friends about me, and then yeah, donating in the meantime, time or money, either way works. And showing up, calling your representatives while the session is going on right now, keeping an eye on bills that are being proposed and hitting the floor and let your representative know as their constituent, how you want them to vote, how you want them to represent you, because that is what they're supposed to be doing is representing you. Make sure your representatives are being held accountable. But also I want to say this, I'm not the only pro-choice woman running. There is Allison Beal, who is down in Hendersonville. She's a good friend of mine. We have the same campaign manager. She's running on reproductive health care, but also like gun safety and public schools. She's a former teacher, so supporting her. And then there's so many other women across the state. So put your support in where we need it. And yeah, I mean, it's the best way we're going to flip some of these seats. Your, your willingness to share your story has, I know, obviously, by the community that you've seen, you know, on your social platforms built around you. But also, I'm sure many people stop you and just say thank you so much because your willingness to share your story made them feel less alone. Because as much as some people may believe that only bad things happen on the first pregnancy or (laughs) don't really understand the definition of these medical procedures that we're discussing today, I think that there's a lot of people who choose to believe that that this doesn't happen very often, that this is kind of like a, a total chance thing that doesn't really happen. It actually happens quite often. So for anyone that's listening today who has shared a version of an, of their own personal experience that parallels yours or who has a loved one who's you know, who also had an experience that parallels yours, you mentioned many times that you never had the opportunity to truly grieve And is there anything that you would maybe say to them in this moment while they're trying to find and understand their grieving process, something that kind of helped you or just something that you'd want to say to them? I would say being able to find community has been the biggest help for me. And I don't know if this is the same for everybody, but being able to share my story has been therapeutic for me because normally I like bottle my emotions up and I don't talk about them and I just deal with it. And I'm just like, I don't want to burden other people with my problems. So I never talk about what's going on. I just put on a fake face. Being able to share my story publicly helped me so much. And I know not everybody is capable of sharing such a personal story in the public eye like that. But there are like Facebook groups and small organizations in your areas, more than likely, that are women who have gone through the same thing. And you can meet with these people virtually in person and just tell your story to them and listen to their stories. And as you hear their stories, you understand like, wow, like I didn't go through this alone. Like I'm not the only person in the world who had to go through this. And these people are hurting just as much as I am. And you kind of find comfort in each other's pain because it's one of those situations where nobody can truly understand what you went through unless they've gone through it too. And people can sympathize and say they're they're sorry and they, you know, they feel for you, but nobody is truly going to understand that pain like someone else that has gone through it. So, but also be kind to yourself. I was very harsh on myself. I blamed myself. Like I said earlier, every day I blamed myself. And that's not healthy mentally at all. 
understand that things happen. And if there was a way that it could have been changed, it would have. And I kind of, I live life on the everything happens for a reason. Sometimes we know our reason right off the bat. Other times it takes a while, but know that what happened to you is it's going to be okay. And don't dwell on it for too long because there is another opportunity for you to try again, if you so please. There's also an opportunity for you to speak out, especially with what's going on today. So uh, I just want people to know that they're not alone and they're always welcome to reach out either to me or organizations or I can get them in touch with organizations because postpartum is real, whether you have the baby or not. And so I never want to see a woman lose her life because she couldn't get someone to listen to her. Well, we're all listening to you today. Thank you so, so much for taking the time to speak with me and my listeners. I Let's go knock on some doors, Allie. Yeah, let's get out I'm there. Excited. I know. Usually I do like a conversation cool down and I'm like, no, no, no. Let's do a conversation. I'm all fired up. I'm like, let's go. <laughs> let's go. I cannot. I'm, I'm ready. I'm let's let's hit the pavement. We'll get you a Team Allie shirt. Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> well, thank you so, so much. A Super Bloom podcast is hosted by me, Candace King, produced by Melissa D. Mons and Diamond Imprint Productions, edited by Diane Kang, post-production sound by Coco Lawrence, and advertising partnership with ACAST. <laughs>